You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining us for The Gate Church Online. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at The Gate. And I recently turned 38, and so if you do the math, this means that I spent most of my formative years growing up in the 90s. This was a time of grunge, a time of loose-fitted, mostly plaid clothing, vintage t-shirts from Value Village, and of course, baggy pants. I was also in a rock band, so naturally, as a teenager, and much to the chagrin of adults everywhere, my pants were often two sizes too big and also hung well below my waist. This is also why I had a huge collection of belts, because without them, my pants would have surely fallen down. In fact, on those days when I went to school forgetting to wear a belt, I'd have to walk from class to class with one hand holding my pants and the other hand holding my books so that my pants wouldn't fall down in front of my other classmates. That's what you call living dangerously. And speaking of belts, I also remember walking into a McDonald's once during my emo years in the early 2000s, and uh, the teenage girl at the till taking my order noticed the belt that I was wearing, which was adorned with a particularly awesome belt buckle, which may or may not have looked like this. And she saw that, no joke, and she was like, whoa, when you walked in here, I thought you were a wannabe, but that belt buckle shows that you're legit. And for those wondering, I'm pretty sure that was a cool word to say back then. Um, I I showed that belt buckle to my son Liam, who you saw earlier reading the Bible passage, uh, and he didn't think it was very legit. But um, she did, so I'm going to go with that. So anyways, my belt not only practically held my pants in place, but it also showed that I was legit, according to one person at least. And, and, And in a similar way... This is why the passage this morning concerning the armor of God is is imploring us to, first of all, put on the belt of truth, to keep us grounded in truth, and also to help us embody truth. Because again, what usually happens when you don't wear a belt? Your robe gets unraveled or your pants fall down, right? In the same way, what happens when your foundation for life is built on a lie? Well, your life unravels or falls apart. You'll trip over yourself and end up falling prey to to many deceptions. And so the Apostle Paul's reminding the Ephesians, and now us, that as believers, we need to be girdled and held firm by God's truth, not only to prepare us and hold up the other pieces of armor, but also as an identifying symbol of who we are as well, as we both proclaim and walk in that truth. Of course, in the context of the spiritual warfare, which Paul reminds us of in this passage, this becomes even more poignant because the only defense we have against falling victim to deceit is truth. And if we're not grounded and wrapped in it, we'll easily get trapped in the lies of Satan or to false teachings or the deceitful temptation and desires of sin. As theologian Ian M. Dugan writes, The belt is foundational to any soldier's effectiveness. And according to Paul, the equivalent of the belt in God's armor is truth. Truth is essential to the Christian life. It is foundational to taking a stand against the devil. And we also see this contrast in the words of Jesus from John chapter 8, which says in John 8 verses 31 to 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then later, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So truth will set you free. Truth keeps us from being ensnared and falling victim to the enemy. And on that end, and as we discussed last week in in our introduction to the series on the full armor, one of the things that will often impress upon us a deeper understanding and need for each piece of armor is to also gain a deeper understanding of the tactics and methods in which the weapons of the enemy are formed against us. And it should come as no surprise here that that Satan's primary weapon in attempting to corrupt the truth of God is to lie. In fact, he not only lies, but in the Bible, Satan is actually referred to as the tempter and the father of lies. The accuser who's cunningly deceitful, who schemes and seeks to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. Recently, there have been studies done on what it takes to lie, and some professionals have even started defining the act of lying in a child as a type of milestone in their brain development. The reason being is is because in order to successfully lie and deceive someone, you need to have a certain level of intellect, sophisticated planning, attention to detail, and, and the ability to see a situation from someone else's perspective. So make no mistake... Satan is not stupid. He has an ability to whisper the greatest deceit in our ear while making it sound like the most amazing or accurate truth we've ever heard. Even from the beginning, it was the serpent who who approached Eve with the famous line of deceit. Did God really say you couldn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did God really say that? And then he basically says to Eve, does God really have your best interest at heart? I think God's just holding out on you. And this is Satan's greatest tool and his greatest line. Did God really say that? In fact, it was this nugget of of deception which caused just enough doubt for Adam and Eve. And this resulted in their betrayal against the word of God and the fall of man into sin. And so again, this is how Satan attacks. He deceives, he tempts, he distracts us from the truth. He creates doubt in it. He lies. We also need to recognize, though, that that Satan isn't omniscient or omnipotent like God is. Right? That that means he's not all-knowing and he can't be everywhere at once. He's just one one spiritual being. Even his army of demons is, is limited in their reach. But yet we also need to recognize that this this spiritual battle and his influence of of lies and temptations are still often manifest in this world through through certain people sometimes or through false but influential teachers or, or leaders that might tickle our ears or sometimes in the media, or in culture, in empires, in in some of the systems and structures of the world, in other religions and ideologies, and even at times in our own hearts. We see the evidence of his influence, this spirit of Babylon, as we call it in Daniel. We see that all the time. In fact, we're constantly being lied to. Told we're not skinny enough. Told we'll be happier with more money. Told we'll finally be satisfied if we just do whatever feels good. 
Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, the the influence of Satan's deception is felt everywhere. It's in the air. It's in every lie. It's in every temptation. As an added warning, 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 tells us, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And speaking of high school, I recall that there was this one particular person among my group of friends who was a chronic liar. There was, there was never any particular rhyme or reason for it. She was simply addicted to making stuff up. And unfortunately, her lying would, would constantly create drama and hurt and strain among us, even causing breakups and friendships to end. Inevitably, though, as we began to see through her lies, our friendship with her eventually ended as well. But the point is, we all know how damaging and hurtful even the smallest of lies can be. And that's because, according to the Bible, to lie and deceive is satanic in nature. At one point in in Jesus' ministry, he's confronted by some Pharisees who refused to listen to the truth of God that Jesus was speaking to them. And and they also accused him of being demon-possessed. And so Jesus rebukes them, saying in John 8, 44-45, he says to them, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Primarily, our, our native tongue in Canada is English. Sometimes it's French, if you're from the East. But Satan's native tongue is deceit. That's the natural language he speaks. On that end, I find it quite alarming then, and even drawn to repentance, when when I ponder this idea that to speak or peddle lies is to speak the language of the devil. Ultimately, the devil not only wants to persuade us to believe his lies, but to also walk in them and proclaim them. But in contrast to this, we're reminded in Scripture hundreds of times, in fact, that God's word is always truth and that he cannot lie. Like in Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And in Hebrews 16, 8, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. And 2 Samuel 7.28 says, And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And God wants us to be like him, with our belts secured around our waist, walking in truth. But Satan wants us tripping over our pants and and getting entangled in lies and half-truths and false gospels. But again, we can only spot and resist the liar if we're in the truth. For example, if I bring my car into the shop to get fixed and the mechanic tells me that my crankshaft and the transistor belt mechanism relay needs to be fixed, I'd have no clue that that he's making it all up to scam me because I know very little about cars. 
And the same goes for the lies of the devil. We won't be able to spot them or resist them unless we first know and are secured in the truth. Only then, as it says in Ephesians 4, 4, will we no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. So what does it mean, or, or better yet, how do we then put on this belt of truth? And to answer this question, I have four points. First of all, first point is that to put on the belt of truth is to know the truth. On that end, many books and thick volumes have been written on the idea and search for truth. Uh, but according to our current liberal post-Christian or post-truth or secular relativistic culture or whatever you want to call it these days, truth actually isn't a thing to be grasped. Rather, it's something which is relative or existential based on our current mood or experience, ever-changing like our emotions. Everyone can have their own truths that conveniently support the, their own point of view. Even beyond that, our culture has now accepted that personal preferences are more valuable than truth. To make matters worse, we also live in a culture of fake news, media bias, and misinformation, which is often spread rapidly over social media and in spaces like coffee shops or offices. My point is that it's harder than ever to know what's true and what isn't. In fact, in, in today's culture, it's almost as if holding on to doubt and confusion and personal preference, which I may remind you are the deceptive tools of the enemy, these things are often applauded as intellect these days. Whereas to believe something as truth or, or to, to claim to have clarity, especially about big yet important ideas about God, religion, morality, or the meaning of life, is often shunned or looked down upon. Like, like Pontius Pilate, as he questioned Jesus before sending him to his death on the cross, our culture balks at, at this idea of concrete truth and therefore proclaims to the rafters without expecting or even really wanting an answer, what is truth? As theologian Abdu Murray writes, Pilate exchanged the opportunity of a lifetime for a rhetorical punchline. His attitude mirrors today's post-truth culture of confusion. He had the privilege of standing before the one who claimed to be the truth incarnate and would later prove it by rising from the dead. How ironic that Pilate's personal preferences trumped his recognition of a person who embodied truth. Yet Pilate wouldn't submit himself to the truth. He subordinated it to his personal preferences. But the most difficult step is realizing that our preferences aren't the governor here. It's no surprise then that in the midst of all this misinformation and, and, and post-truth thought, our Western culture, according to sound research, has become more confused, opinionated, depressed, angry, offended, and divided than ever. Whether, whether it's in politics or philosophy, religion, education, self-esteem, relationships, morality, or in our own hearts and, and minds. In other words, our culture is often found tripping over its own pants. And all this is really just a greater reminder for us as Christians that in order to sift through the lies, temptations, and, and half-truths, to prevent being swept to and fro by all the false, confusing, and, and empty rhetoric out there, we need to remain centered and grounded on a truth that is certain and sure. And as Christians, we found that this truth isn't merely intellectual, but that ultimately truth is a person we can know. 
Jesus proclaimed about himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we also read earlier, Jesus proclaimed that he's the personified revelation of the truth of God and that to know him then is to know the one and only truth that sets us free, who brings us out of the darkness and into the light. As the late theologian John Stott writes, for certainly it is only the truth, the revelation of God in Christ and in scripture, which can dispel the devil's lies and set us free. And so according to the word of God, to to fasten on the belt of truth starts with believing in Jesus Christ by faith and in knowing him personally. It starts with submitting to him and his word, not as a truth among many, but as the truth. Or as Nancy Piercy writes, not just as religious truth, but as total truth, covering all of reality. Secondly, then, to put on the belt of truth is to grow in the knowledge of the truth. Jesus, so Jesus came to reveal us the God of all truth, but we've also been given both his spirit and his word to help us grow in the knowledge of who he is, who we're called to be, and in his promises and in his doctrines. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 13, he said to them, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then in John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in Psalm 119, verses 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It'll come as no surprise for you to hear me say then that part of what it means to to strap on this belt of truth, which we receive in Christ, is to consistently and prayerfully grow in our understanding of the Bible. As we study God's word daily, it it changes us and molds us by the power of the Spirit more and more into the image and knowledge and truth of God. And and as we'll discuss even further when we talk about the sword of the Spirit in a couple of weeks, it's our knowledge of the word of truth along with the power of the Spirit that that becomes effective in, in crushing and dispelling the lies and deceptive schemes of the enemy. And we've all experienced his lies. Lies that try to trap us or, or keep us from walking in the freedom and joy of Christ. Lies that tell us, uh, for example, in moments of hardship and struggle that, that God's given up or abandoned us. But yet the word of truth tells us that the God of all comfort will never leave us or forsake us. And that he works out all things for the good of those who love him. Or lies that, that tell us in times of weakness or shame that, that our sin is too great to be forgiven. But the word of truth reminds us that Jesus loves us so much that he came to save even the greatest of sinners, that his grace is overflowing, that his mercies are new every morning, and that that there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. Or contrarily, lies that that try to convince us in, in moments of pride that we don't need a savior, that we can save ourselves. Yet the word of truth proclaims that all fall short of the glory of God, which is why Jesus gave himself up for us. Or lies that that maybe try to tell us in times of loneliness or, or depression that we're insignificant or that our lives don't matter. Yet the word of truth reminds us that we're all made in the image of God and that each person matters and that each person plays a pivotal role within the church and in the kingdom of God. 
or maybe lies that try to tempt us or, or, or convince us in our selfishness and, and pride to indulge the passions of our flesh, to follow after other false truths, or that Jesus isn't all we need. Whereas the word of truth reminds us that Jesus is our satisfaction, that Jesus is our joy and our supply, that he has given us everything we need to live in this life and the next. My, my point is that the more we grasp and grow in the truth of Christ, the more it becomes written on our hearts, and therefore the more strengthened and more effective our belt of truth becomes in our ability to stand firm against the attacks and lies of the enemy. Which leads me to my third point, which is that to put on the belt of truth is to walk in it and proclaim it. 1 John 2, 3-6, it says this, This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So on one level, to put on the belt of truth is, is to become like Christ and to be obedient to Christ. It's to be harbingers of, of the Bible's doctrinal truths and, and, and of the gospel of Christ in both word and deed. We should display that truth in our lives. As Christians, we're called to proclaim that truth in love to a world that longs to hear it. And we'll learn about this more when we study the shoes or boots of the gospel in a couple weeks. But I strongly believe that on another level, practically speaking, this also means that as, as Christians, we're called to be sincere and truthful in everything. That we simply shouldn't lie or break our promises, or practice any kind of deception at all. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And even one of the Ten Commandments says, Don't bear false witness. As John Stott again writes, To be deceitful, to lapse into hypocrisy, to resort to intrigue and scheming, this is to play the devil's game, and we shall not be able to beat him at his own game. What he abominates is transparent transparent truth. I'd argue that we not only play the devil's game when we lie, but we give him a footstool into our lives as well. And the more we propagate false truths, the more susceptible we'll be to also believe them when he whispers them in our ear. Recently, there's been a couple articles released online by notable Christian sites that have pointed out the fact that many Christians have been part of this problem of our culture's current rapid spread of misinformation, political propaganda, and conspiracy theories through social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Why this is, we can only guess. And of course, Christians are definitely not the only offenders here. But my, my point this morning is that Christians shouldn't be part of this spread of misinformation at all. Because the bottom line is that, that to walk in the truth means that we're not harbingers of conspiracy theories or disinformation or rumors. We're not harbingers of fake news. We're not harbingers of deception or, or half-truths or careless words, which Jesus actually says we'll eventually be judged by. Rather, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ, a spirit-led church of honesty, integrity, justice, transparency, and truth. 
Ultimately, our words and actions should bring clarity and light into a world of confusion and darkness, not add to the confusion. Besides, we've all heard of the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? In the same way, if we keep peddling lies or conspiracy theories or false truths without thought, we start to not only look like idiots to the world, but also untrustworthy. Why would anyone listen to our claims that Jesus is the truth and the life if we don't embody truth in our own lives and in our Facebook posts? We're called to walk in the truth. And let's not forget that truth should be trustworthy. Which brings us to my fourth and final point this morning, which is that to put on on the belt of truth is to trust and hope in that truth. According to to a couple of my commentaries and resources, the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for truth used in this passage is aletheia, which can also be rendered as faithfulness. Also in the book of Isaiah chapter 11, we can read that the Messiah has has put on the sash of faithfulness around his waist, implying that Jesus Christ in, in his righteousness and faithfulness to God's word will save his people and free us from sin. And during Jesus' ministry, he's often known to start off his teachings with the words, truly, truly, which convey to his listeners that, that what he's about to say is not only true, but verifiable and trustworthy. In other words, Jesus is faithful and his word is trustworthy. He is truth. And therefore, as Christians, we can trust and hope in that truth that we've received freely through him. As Duguid again writes, Jesus' faithful girding of himself with the truth stands for us, so that on the last day, when the Father summons us into his presence, he will not condemn us for our faithlessness, but will delight to clothe us in Christ's perfect faithfulness. Even now, Christ clothes us with his perfect love of the truth, as if it were our very own. It's Christ's faithfulness to the truth which won the victory over Satan's lies. And therefore, we can trust and hope in that truth. We can fasten it around our very being like a belt to protect us and strengthen us, to guide us into all truth, to set us free from the darkness, and to help us stand firm against the enemy.